0: Let's stand together to honor the reading of God's Word.
1: Our scripture reading this morning is from John chapter 19, verse 31, through chapter 20, verse 10. Starting with John chapter 19, verse 31. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who had earlier come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand that the Scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Thanks be to God. Please be seated. We are working our way through the Gospel of John. We have just a couple of sermons left, uh, and then, Lord willing, we will be in the book of Exodus for about 16 weeks. Uh, and then we'll spend roughly 10 to 11 weeks in the Psalms this summer, and then, Lord willing, we will try to tackle the book of Romans this fall, which will be a long, drawn-out, multiple-year series, and I'm very excited about that series. But let's pray now as we uh, tackle this section in John. Father, thank you so much for giving us your holy, inspired, and errant word. Father, thank you for Jesus, who lived, who died, who rose from the grave and then poured out the Spirit at Pentecost. And Father, we pray that you would send the Spirit now to give each one of us the gift of understanding. We want to understand and apply and live out the truths of these Scriptures this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Without Bill Gates, there would be no Microsoft. Without Steve Jobs, there would be no Apple computers. Without Elon Musk, there would be no Tesla. Without football, there'd be no Super Bowl. Without wings, there'd be no airplanes. Without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there would be no Christianity. The resurrection is the Latin phrase, sine qua non of Christianity. That that literally means without which not sine qua non is the indispensable ingredient of something. Without the resurrection, Christianity utterly falls apart and we are wasting our time this morning. Christians believe that Jesus Christ rose bodily from the grave 2,000 years ago and that is the center of the Christian religion. Well, Dave, that's great that you believe in bodily resurrections, but I don't believe in things like tooth fairies, or the Easter bunny, or Santa Claus, or bodily resurrections. I need evidence to believe in something. Many people mistakenly think that faith is the thing you do when you run out of evidence. Quite the contrary. Christian faith is based on evidence. We believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ because of the evidence, not because we lack evidence. And this morning's text is a wonderful summary of the evidence for the resurrection. We're going to look at that evidence under three headings this morning. First, Jesus really died, second, Jesus really rose. And third, Jesus really lives. So, first point, Jesus really died. John 19, 31 to 34, John writes this. Since it was the day of preparation so that the bodies would not remain on the cross, on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first. And of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. Skipping down to verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now, according to these verses, it seems pretty obvious or pretty clear that Jesus actually died on the cross. There's all kinds of evidence. Uh, in this account, that Jesus really died. Now, some argue that Jesus did not actually die on the cross. and If he didn't die, then he didn't rise from the dead. So we need to prove that Jesus actually died on the cross before we can prove that he rose from the grave. So what are some of those objections that Jesus didn't actually die on the cross? Well, the first one is called the swoon theory. Uh, this theory argues that Jesus was actually given a strange concoction of drugs before he was on the cross, um, ensuring that he would actually pass out on the cross, not actually die, but pass out, uh, and then they, they would think he was dead, and then he'd be revived several hours later, and... Um, walk around, and do all kinds of things. This, this particular theory was made um, popular in a 1976 movie, the year I was born. Uh, the movie is called, anyone know what it's called? Anyone know? If you, if you know, I will give you a free book in the bookstore. Anyone know what this movie is called? Good, you're all orthodox. You haven't seen it, <laughs> okay? It's called The Passover Plot, 1976. And this movie basically argued this now, this thesis has multiple problems, as you can imagine. For instance, all the non-Christian historians of Jesus' day report that Jesus actually died. Josephus, Tacitus, Thallus, the Jewish Talmud. There are no historical documents that teach the swoon theory. Problem two. The Roman soldiers in charge of Christ's crucifixion were professional executioners. And they were convinced for several specific reasons that Jesus was dead. For instance, they did not break his legs. And why does that matter? Because people on crosses eventually died of asphyxiation or suffocation. And when they couldn't push their body up, they couldn't get a breath and they would die. Because they thought he was already dead, they didn't break his legs because that would have been pointless. Furthermore, they knew they would face death if they allowed a prisoner to survive crucifixion. Problem three there's no way that any human being could undergo what Jesus underwent and survive. He was whipped repeatedly to within an inch of his life. Then he was stabbed four times with at least seven inch nails, twice. His hands twice in his feet. Later he was stabbed in his side with a Roman spear, uh, causing water and blood to flow forth. More on this in a moment. He was then wrapped in 75 pounds of bandages and spices. That's a lot of cloth and spices. He was then laid in a dark, cold tomb with no water for three days while in critical condition. So yes, he died. (laughs) Problem four. Contemporary medical scholars believe that he died. Writing in the March 21st, 1986 edition of the Journal of the American Medical Association, three medical doctors, including a pathologist from the Mayo Clinic, concluded with these words, Clearly, the weight of historical and medical evidence indicates that Jesus was dead before the wound to his side was inflicted, and supports the traditional view that the spear thrust between his right rib probably perforated not only the right lung, but also the pericardium and heart, and thereby ensured his death. Accordingly, interpretations based on the assumption that Jesus did not die on the cross appear to be at odds with modern medical knowledge. So, the swoon theory has way too many problems. Now, The next theory is similar. This would be the Muslim theory. Um, My Muslim friends argue with me that what actually happened was uh, Jesus didn't die on the cross. At the very last second, he was subbed out and someone else stepped in his place, and that other imposter was the one who actually died on the cross. Now, what's wrong with this theory? This theory was developed... Over 600 years later, and is utterly contrary to all the eyewitness accounts. Th- there is no evidence from the first century for this theory whatsoever. This theory comes from Muhammad, who wrote the Quran, 600 years later. <laughs> he was not an eyewitness. This would be kind of like someone today um, saying in 1521 at the Diet of Worms, it really wasn't Martin Luther who was on trial. It was an imposter acting like Martin Luther. Therefore, all the eyewitnesses who were there, the Holy Roman Emperor, the Spanish soldiers, uh, John Eck, the Inquisitor, um, uh, uh, all the politicians, all the eyewitnesses, the whole town of Worms, they were all wrong. All of them were wrong. All those eyewitnesses were wrong. And I know 500 years later that I'm right. How do I know? Because I just feel like I'm right. I'm going to ignore all the eyewitness testimony. Now, when I mention this to my, my Muslim friend, Muhammad, um, he just says, Well, the Quran says it. Here's the problem this is called the Quranic problem. The Quran clearly says the Bible is trustworthy. Now, most Muslims ignore that little fact. But if the Bible's trustworthy, then Jesus really died and he really rose from the grave. So the Muslim problem has all kinds of, or the, yeah, the Muslim theory has all kinds of problems as well. So did Jesus really die on the cross? And the answer is a resounding yes. His death on the cross is not contested by any historians, Christian or non-Christian. Gary Habermas has done by far the most scholarship on the resurrection in the last 40 or 50 years. He's an excellent scholar. He's now at Liberty University University. He collected 1,400 of the most critical scholarly articles on the resurrection over about a 25-year period, and he concludes that virtually all scholars, liberal unbelievers, and Bible-thumping fundamentalists, they all believe certain things are established historical fact. Like what? These are the established facts. Jesus Christ of Nazareth really lived. No one doubts that despite what you may see on the Discovery Channel. Okay, no scholar doubts that. Lay that to rest. Jesus Christ really died by Roman crucifixion. Jesus Christ really was buried in a private tomb. Jesus Christ's tomb was empty very soon after his internment. Jesus' followers had experiences that they believed were actual appearances of the risen Jesus. Jesus' followers live transformed lives as a result of these experiences. Jesus' followers proclaim the historicity of the resurrection in Jerusalem very shortly after Jesus died. Just a few years later, Saul of Tarsus claims that he was converted by the risen Christ. That's historical fact. Jesus really died. It's a fact. But if he remained dead, none of us would be here talking about this this morning. Which brings us to the second heading. Jesus really died. Second, Jesus really rose. John 20, 1-7. We have to grapple with the empty tomb. John 21-7. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself." So very clearly in the story, the tomb is empty. Mary saw the empty tomb, and then Peter and probably John also saw that the tomb was empty. How do we know that Jesus Christ really rose from the grave? The answer is the empty tomb. Now, in history, there's really only been five explanations put forward to explain the reality of the empty tomb. So what are those explanations? First, well, the witnesses went to the wrong tomb. This is highly unlikely because Joseph of Arimathea uh, was a prominent man with a prominent tomb in a very small town. Everyone knew who he was and probably where the tomb was. Furthermore... If they went to the wrong tomb, the Romans could have easily gone to the right tomb and produced the body. Second explanation, the disciples stole the body. If the disciples stole the body, the disciples obviously knew that Jesus Christ had not risen from the dead. People are willing to die for something they believe is true, but not something they know for a fact is false. One scholar says this about this reality. Does anyone seriously believe that these men who were discouraged, defeated, and who feared for their lives would go out, steal Jesus' body, and then proceed to boldly preach the resurrection to hostile crowds? What would motivate them to do this? Why face prison and torture and death all the while knowing that Jesus' dead body lay in some hidden place? It's a great question that demands an answer. Furthermore, How in the world did this ragtag group of disciples who had no military training get past 20 to 30 professional Roman soldiers who would be put to death for allowing this to happen? Third, well, his enemies clearly stole the body. If this were true, why didn't they produce it when the disciples said, Jesus Christ is risen. No, he hasn't. Here's his dead body. (laughs) Unlikely explanation. Fourth, Well, this account was clearly copied down wrong. Therefore, we can't trust the biblical accounts of the empty tomb or the resurrection. In response, the New Testament documents are far better preserved, far more numerous, and far more accurate than any other document in the ancient world. We have over 5,800 copies uh, or, or fragments of the New Testament Greek. I'm sorry, of the, yeah, the New Testament in Greek. Furthermore, when you combine all the languages, Syrian, Coptic, Greek, we have 24,000 pieces of manuscript evidence proving the Bible is trustworthy, reliable, accurate, and well transmitted. Now when you compare this to other documents of antiquity, nothing even comes close. I wanna show you a really important chart I've shown before in here that's very encouraging. This chart is basically showing that the New Testament has—we have more copies of evidence today, and the copies come from closer to the time that it was written. Now, can, can you guys see this? Hopefully, let's let's start with um, Plato. So, Plato, date written 427 BC. The earliest copy we have is from 900 AD, 1200 years later, and we have how many copies? Seven, no one doubts the authenticity of Plato's writings, okay? Let's skip down here to Thucydides. He was writing in roughly 400 B.C., earliest copy, 900 A.D., 1,300 years later is when the earliest copy was preserved, and we have how many copies? Eight, and no one doubts Thucydides as a historically reliable document. 1,300 years after it was written, only eight copies, okay? Let's do a few more here. Uh, How about Tacitus? Uh, Around 100 AD, um, earliest copy is from 1,000 years later. We have 20 copies, and no one doubts the veracity or the truthfulness of Tacitus. Okay, let's skip down to the New Testament, okay? Written in 500 to 100 AD, earliest copy is roughly 30 years later. Okay, 130 A.D., less than 100 years. How many copies do we have? 56 or 58, depending on who's counting, copies. Okay, all this to prove that when it comes to historical reliability from antiquity, nothing comes close to the New Testament for the amount of copies we have and how close those copies are to when they were written. So if you can't trust the New Testament, you can't trust any historical document written less than 500 years ago, period. So all that to say, yes, we can trust the New Testament. It is reliable, it was carefully copied down, and the copies we have today match very closely to the copies from 2,000 years ago. Fifth explanation, and the one that makes the most sense. Jesus rose from the dead, which is why the tomb was empty. His friends said the tomb was empty. His enemies implied the tomb was empty. The Jewish response to he is risen was his body was stolen, not go look in the tomb where it's still present. Even non-Christians admitted that Jesus Christ rose from the grave. There's this amazing quote by a guy named Flegin, uh, 80 AD. Uh, and this, uh, the scholar writes this, did the Roman writer Flegin, born circa 80 AD, lie as well when he wrote in his chronicles, again, this guy's not a Christian who's writing this, Jesus, while alive, was of no assistance to himself, but that he arose after death and exhibited the marks of his punishment and showed how his hands had been pierced by nails. All that to say The tomb really was empty, which means that Christ really lives, which brings us to the last point. So, first, Jesus really died. Second, Jesus really rose. And third, Jesus really lives. Well, how do we know that he really lives? Lots of reasons, but the answer from this text and the surrounding texts are the eyewitnesses of the resurrection. In next week's text, skipping ahead a little bit, we learn uh, that there were several witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. Several people saw his body Mary Magdalene, John, uh, John 20, 11, the Disciples, John 20:19. Doubting Thomas, next week's text, John 20, 24 to 29, and of course, the author of the Gospel of John, John himself. And then in 1 Corinthians 15, we read, over 500 eyewitnesses saw the risen Christ at one time. Now, the eyewitness testimony is very believable for a variety of reasons. According to the New Testament record, Jesus was seen in different places. Over a period of 40 days, he was seen eating and drinking. He was seen walking and talking by male and female alike. He was seen over a dozen times. He was seen inside. He was seen outside. He was physically touched. None of the critics could produce his dead body. This was all very public. And when John was written down and 1 Corinthians was written down, These witnesses were still alive, and anyone who wanted could go and talk to them and ask them, have you actually seen the risen Christ? Now, let's say that I said to you, yesterday, I was in my front yard playing catch with my boys, and lo and behold, out of nowhere, Brock Purdy pulls up in his Porsche. Who's Brock Purdy? Quarterback for the 49ers, okay? He pulls up in his Porsche, they're playing next weekend, by the way, in the Super Bowl. He says, hey, can I play catch with you? And I say, sure, you're Brock Purdy, NFL MVP this last year, more than likely. We start playing catch, he says, well, he says, Dave, you're pretty good. Um, I'll tell you what, I'll talk to our GM, and let's get you signed before next weekend so you can play with us in the Super Bowl. And I'll tell you what, if you sign today with John Lynch, the GM of the 49ers, I will give you a $5 million signing bonus. Now, you're probably doubting me right now, aren't you? I can tell by the looks in your eyes. You're doubting me. But if I could pull into this room right now Brock Purdy and John Lynch, and they could testify as eyewitnesses as to what happened, would you believe me? Probably. (laughs) The point is, they're eyewitnesses. They were there. They saw it. They participated in it. John and Paul and Luke and Matthew and Mark wrote about the resurrection. And when those letters were published or were being, being read by Christians around the Mediterranean, they could easily go and talk to the eyewitnesses and confirm the testimony that Jesus Christ actually rose from the grave. Well, how else do we know that Jesus Christ really lives? Eyewitness testimony And we have transformed lives. Now, I admit, life transformation is not the best evidence or the only evidence. But it is amazing (laughs) that monotheistic Trinitarian Jews believe that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. Within about four or five weeks of the resurrection, 10,000 Jews converted to Christ. Now, this is utterly mind-boggling when you think about it. For 2,000 years... Jews were taught there's how many gods? One. They were fiercely monotheistic. The Shema, Deuteronomy 6, 4. Here it is where the Lord our God, the Lord is one. They were brainwashed with that for thousands of years. And now, all of a sudden, they believe that God the Father is God and Jesus Christ is God. Why? Because of the resurrection. They now believe, all these, these 10,000 Jews in 33 A.D., in one God with three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and they were willing to die for this conviction because the other Jews thought believing Christ is God is blasphemy, punishable by death, a death by stoning. And now all these Jews suddenly believe that Christ is the Messiah, and a member of the Trinity, how do we explain 10,000 Jews all of a sudden overnight believing that Christ is the Messiah? And the answer is clearly the resurrection. They saw the evidence. They believed the evidence. People will die for something they think is true, but they will not die for something they think or know is false. And the disciples were in a position to know for sure whether the resurrection actually happened or not. Since the time of Christ, literally billions of people around the globe have put their hope and confidence in the risen Christ. And today, over 2 billion people worldwide believe that Jesus Christ rose from the grave. Jesus really died. Jesus really rose. Jesus really lives. Let's make some application. Believing in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ is reasonable. Again, the resurrection is not wishful thinking. We believe in the resurrection of the Christ because of the evidence, not despite the evidence. The resurrection of the Christ is the best explanation of what happened 2,000 years ago. And I'm just scratching the surface this morning on the evidence. You can read books that are 1,000 pages long that go into this evidence in detail. This is not a fairy tale. Jesus Christ really lived, he really died, and he really rose from the grave 2,000 years ago. And we believe that because of the evidence. And this is good news for Christians like me and you who often wonder, is Christianity really true? Is it really true? And the answer is yes. It's based on really good eyewitness testimony. In addition, the resurrection provides you and I with hope. If Jesus Christ really lived, really died, and really rose from the grave, that means that all of our sins can be forgiven. All of our sins. Dave, even future sins? Yes, all of our sins, past, present, and future. All of our sins can be forgiven because the resurrection proves that Jesus is God. And because he was God, he was a sacrifice worthy enough or valuable enough to atone for the sins of billions of people. And if Jesus Christ really rose from the grave, that means that you and I really have resurrection power inside of us, the Holy Spirit, to say no to sin and live lives that are pleasing to God. This morning, what sin are you struggling with? Lust, pride, greed, anxiety, lack of faith. Maybe you drink too much. Maybe you eat too much. Maybe you yell and scream at your kids. I don't know what the issue is. Because Jesus Christ rose from the grave, you have supernatural power inside of you to honor God with your life. No matter how thick the temptation feels, there's always a way out Because the Holy Spirit dwells inside of you because of the resurrection. And because of the resurrection, because Jesus really lived, died, and rose from the grave, someday your body will rise from the grave. And you'll receive a glorified resurrection body and dwell with Christ for all eternity. No more sin, no more sickness, no more sadness, no more depression. No more anxiety, no more lust, no more poverty, no more war. You'll be with the triune God for all eternity, enjoying heavenly bliss. Furthermore, the resurrection changes lives. Dave, I know this is true. I'm a Christian, I've been here for a while, but are you living like it's true? Are you living like it's true? Do you believe what you believe? If you really believed that all your sins were forgiven, and someday, no matter how hard your life is, you'll spend all eternity in a resurrection body that hopefully that better change how you live now. No matter what happens as a Christian, no matter what happens, and a lot of bad things can happen as a Christian. The best is always yet to come. There's always hope. Because someday we'll dwell in resurrection bodies on this earth, recreated. Are we living like it's true? Are we telling our friends about the glories of the resurrection? Finally, the resurrection challenges the skeptic. If you're a skeptic, you have the burden of proof for your alternative theories. You must be willing to provide first century evidence contrary to the gospel accounts. You must be willing to to disregard eyewitness testimony. You must be willing to put forward an alternative theory that you can back up with at least three to four first century sources. You must be willing to prove why currently two billion people worldwide are wrong about the resurrection. And considering the strong evidence, For the resurrection, one thing you cannot afford to do is ignore the claims of Christianity. If Christ lived and rose and now lives again and you refuse to submit to him, you'll spend all eternity in hell separated from him. But if Christ lived, and died, and rose, and now lives, and you're currently trusting him, all your sins are forgiven, and you'll spend all eternity with him. Apathy is not an option. You must decide if you're gonna follow Jesus. And if you don't, the consequences are catastrophic. Apathy is not an option for you. You must explore this. If you're not a Christian, you owe it to yourself to dive into the evidence, not tomorrow, not in a week, today. Today. There may not be a tomorrow, or a week, or a month. You owe it to yourself to at least explore the overwhelming preponderance of evidence for the resurrection of the Son of God. Jesus really died. Jesus really rose. And Jesus really lives. And as a result, everything has changed. Let's pray together.